Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, a disciplined listening podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my pleasure to introduce our next guest, Allison O'Brien. Allison is the Director of Training and Development for Echo Listening Intelligence, and she's dedicated to improving the corporate culture of communication one conversation at a time. And today, she's going to share tons of ideas, examples, and perspectives on how we can all improve how we listen, communicate, and interact in our high-value personal and business conversations. I'm excited for her to share her thoughts on how we can improve our self-awareness, be more focused on outcomes, pay close attention to what we're listening for and why. And I'm really interested for her to talk about an important difference between listening for inquiry or listening for advocacy. It's a great conversation. I'm excited to share it with everybody. Thank you for being here today. Of course, before we go any further, we want to make sure we thank our sponsors. For everyone who is interested in learning how to accurately evaluate facial expressions of changing emotions, please head over to humantel.com and check out their suite of self-paced online training programs to accomplish those goals. Take my word for it. I've done them all. It's the best in-class training. That's at humantel.com and enter the code in of 25 for 25% off all of their online training programs. For anyone interested in emotional intelligence, please head over to ei-magazine.com for Emotional Intelligence Magazine and explore their ever-growing library of emotional intelligence-related resources, including blogs, books, articles, webinars, online training programs, cohorts, and more. That's Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com. And of course, for all the professional interviewers listening, if you have not already, please check out the International Association of Interviewers at CertifiedInterviewer.com. That's where you can find out everything you need to know about membership to the organization, member benefits, networking opportunities, online events, in-person events, and so much more. And of course, while you're there, explore the Certified Forensic Interviewer designation to determine if that level of expertise and certification is best for you or your team at this point in your career. Again, I appreciate everybody taking the time to be here for another episode. Thank you very much. And without further ado, I introduce to you, Allison O'Brien. Good morning, Allison. It is so great to meet you. Thank you very much for taking the time today. Michael, I am I am so excited for this. I feel like um, in, in my eyes, I'm talking to a celebrity because honestly, I quote you Probably at least two to three times a week. Um, and But every single time I give a training, a webinar, I'm with a team, um, I quote you. Something very specific that you said that actually was what had me reach out to you. And, and thank you for saying this. Well, I appreciate it. I am humbled and embarrassed. We talked for like 10 minutes before we started and I had no warning you were going to yeah. open up that way. So congratulations on concealing either. your intentions. That was very well done. Um, <laughs> I guess I should probably ask what it was that you quote. Yeah. Well, you know, I I wasn't really withholding from you. I don't know that I had this intention of, you know, elevating you in that way necessarily, but I really do do graciously say that I think of you frequently. Thank you. Because what you said, and I'm I'm paraphrasing a bit, I don't, I don't think that I have the quote 100% word for word, but here's the gist of it. You said, 
We can't anoint ourselves as a good listener. That's a title that has to be given to us by our conversational partners. And I, I read that, I think it was an interview. Uh, someone interviewed you and you said that. And it struck me to the core because it's so aligned with what I do, what I teach, um, you know, what I live at a cellular visceral level. Um, it's, you know, a lot of people claim good listener and their intention is to be a good listener. And if the person in that conversation walks away and doesn't feel heard, doesn't feel like they were present, they didn't get them, they're not going to anoint them that that title, right? So that that can only be given to us. Um, so there you are. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Sin sincerely. Thank you. Um, and I do agree with you well, on, I mean, obviously all of that, but when I hear pe often, I believe the sooner in, a, in an interaction, somebody tells me what a great listener they are, the worse listener they probably are. <laughs> like, I find the more people that come right, oh, I'm such a great listener. Listening is so important to me. They're going to interrupt me 10 times in the next 45 seconds. Like, it's almost guaranteed yeah. that that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, the flip side is true also um, in that I, I sometimes hear people say, oh, you know, I know I'm a, I'm a terrible listener. I'm a really bad listener. And um, it's funny, you know, this assessment or this, this quantifying aspect we, we often give to listening. I, I don't know that I think that's at, that's a really great way to assess listening. I, I think that really it's more about what am I listening to and for, meaning, you know, what am I really picking up on? What engages me? What fires me up that, that keeps my attention in the conversation? And what might I be unintentionally filtering out? Or what am I missing in this conversation that has me show up in a way that we're, you know, in this conversation, not, not intersecting? So we can talk more about that later, but I think we should talk um, about more about that really soon because I love where you're okay. going and I, and I want to hear more and I'm trying to put my next question aside because some people might be thinking, wait a minute, who is Allison? I haven't met her before. I don't know much about her. So candidly, this is the first time we've ever met. We've traded a few messages yeah. before and I, I, I sincerely, we talked before we started, appreciate you reaching out earlier. But I would love it if you could take just a few minutes to explain to everybody, whatever detail you feel is appropriate, your journey to your sure. current role and what you do. And then I promise we'll pick up right where we left off and keep the conversation going. Sounds great. Um, well, so currently, I think the easiest way to describe what I, what I do is I am a corporate communication trainer and I have a special emphasis or expertise focus on listening and what we call listening intelligence, which is an agility or, or, or a skill you can develop over time as you become really self-aware of your own habitual listening behaviors, as you develop a skill and, and an agility to observe your conversational partners and observe and identify what are their listening preferences? What are they paying attention to? What's important to them? What are their needs in the way that I deliver my message? And then the third piece of that is adapting 
how we share information to speak into someone else's listening preferences. So um, in the work that I do with individuals, leaders, and teams, the fundamental piece of this is a scientifically validated assessment tool called the Echo Listening Profile, where we begin to understand our habitual listening habits or preferences. Um, an assessment tool isn't the end-all be-all. It's just the starting point. That's the piece that allows us to get a little bit more self-aware so that we can shift some of the communication habits we've come to rely on and have more valuable conversations, better high-stakes decision-making, um, increase our leadership capabilities, our appreciation of differences, so that we can have more emotional agility and really challenging conversations. So that's really high level what I do now um, in, in terms of teaching listening in that corporate setting. That being said, those lessons and what we learn about listening at work really do translate into our life with the most important people in our life. Um, so we can talk about that at some point as well. Um, an aside, I, I actually credit this work to being able to successfully go through a divorce with no lawyers and no mediators involved. Wow. And yeah. Mm -hmm. And be able to stand on the sidelines with my former husband and watch our kids play and uh, believe it or not, have uh Christmas Eve dinner together and play pickleball weekly. It's bizarre. People think it's very bizarre, but um, it's because of this work. Well, congratulations. I don't think that's necessarily bizarre. I, th I think that's a, a testament to two people and the value that they found in a relationship. And I mean, it's a conversation for another day, probably, but I would yeah. say it's bizarre. So thank you for the illustration and there are a couple of different things i'd love to ask there but i i would sure. as promised love to circle back to the road we started going down where you talked a little bit about how we listen is often and again now i'm probably the one summarizing and not quoting you right um yeah but based on what are we listening to and what are we listening for and yeah. I think that's a great premise to start the conversation from. So if, if you could expand on that point a little bit, I'd really appreciate it. Are there things that we typically, as people, that we do typically listen to or for? Or are there ways to open our eyes up to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about um, science of listening and, and of the brain, right? So the research... Recent research has, has shown that individuals listen for different types of information. So we have habitual filters that we rely on. So I would say that most people accept the idea that individuals express themselves in different ways, right? It's less, I guess, understood this aspect of the brain where people listen for different things and listen in different unique ways. So research um, with the echo listening profile 
has shown that there are really four main habits or four main filters. That being said, some people are really single dominant in one. Others are a combination of two, three, or even all four, which is something we call non-dominant listening. So very, very high level, I'll share with you that these these four filters, um, the first is called connective listening. And this is the, the type of lens where someone is filtering for the impact on others. How does this information or this interaction affect my team, my direct reports, my spouse, potentially? How, how, what is the impact on people and the human component of this interaction? These are listeners who tend to be really hypersensitive to things like body language, tone of voice, harmony in a conversation, and they might miss important details um, or they might tune out entirely if it's all about the details and there isn't a human component to the conversation. There's reflective listening, which is an internal lens. This is someone who is filtering through their own database of experience and expertise and self-interests, not a selfish person, because that's a personality trait, right? That is not a cognitive process as we're filtering information. So the reflective listener is really connecting what they hear to what they already know, what they're interested in, their own role inside of the organization and how they can add value. Um, so they might tune out if they don't see any personal relevance to the information that's being shared. Right? They might overlook the importance toward to others, not because they're not empathetic, but that's not their habitual lens. Analytical listeners, they want the facts. They want the data. They are listening for accuracy and how to ultimately get it right. So this is a very unbiased approach to listening. Um, they're evaluating metrics for value. They will not be swayed by charisma or the credentials of the speaker. It's really about getting it right and what can we trust? What is proven? Can we source it? And then there's conceptual listeners. And these are our big picture, abstract thinkers, um, nonlinear listeners. So as they're taking information, they're listening for what it inspires, the potentiality, future options. Um, they are hearing patterns and seeing similarities between things that to others might seem disparate. So these are folks who, when they share information, can, can seem very energetic and, and passionate because they have heard something that inspired an idea, connection to something else. Right? So that's very high level, the four different main habits in listening. So if you, you think about that, and if you have folks who are sitting around a conference table having to make a collaborative decision, and they're not aware of the other filters that people are using or relying on, we're all going to have dis different decision-making criteria. It could be very, very difficult to come to an aligned action moving forward if we haven't established a decision-making criteria. 
I appreciate you illustrating the four. Thank you very much. And we'll come back to that in just a second. I do want to reinforce the point of understanding the decision-making criteria, whether that is framing it around the goals or framing it around the key points, what are the levers that need to be pulled, who needs to be, I mean, there's lots of different ways that can be done. But if we don't have that objective path laid out, now we all start coming at it from our own naturally biased perspectives and priorities. I'm sure you get yes. it all the time. I'm working with the team and procurement only cares about this and marketing only yes. cares about that and design. Well, that's all they're supposed to care about. Why are you getting mad at them for that? That's their job. That's what they get paid to care about. So now how do we try to line this all up? So I think that's a great point. Um, I guess my next question would be, well, let me set that up first. I'm fully on board with the styles, makes complete sense. And I'm fully on board with the concept, like with many things that we might all have the ability to use some of these, but we probably default to one more often than not. Some people, it might not be exactly the same, but intuitively that makes total sense. So are there specific techniques you've seen to help people apply situational listening where they might try to push themselves from one mode to another, depending on the situation? Yeah, it's just such a great question. So I love that you said we all have the capacity to listen in all of these different lenses. And it's just a matter of what is the degree to which we have preferences for one over another or over the others the degree of preference, which also is related to the amount of energy that it takes or intention that it might take to shift a habit in order to show up in the most valuable way, given the specific circumstances and the people involved in the situation and also for the intended outcome, right? So this is where listening intelligence comes in, which is this moment of In this interaction right now, in this conversation, knowing that my my preference or my default might be X habit, is that what I'm relying on in this moment? Is that the most valuable for this moment? Given the outcome, do I need to be listening through a different lens? Do I need to be asking more open-ended questions that get me to information that will lead us or navigate this conversation towards more cognitive diversity. So it's really about in the moment being very self-aware and sensing where am I at in this conversation right now? What are the needs of the others involved in this conversation? What are our distractions? Am I distracted? What do I believe their distractions are potentially? Um, it's about acknowledging or recognizing the the word choices of our conversational partners. That can kind of give us a sense of what filters do they use. And then we adjust. Right? You so, are speaking my language in layers and layers as we go <laughs> through this. I love the focus on the outcome. And I would love your yeah. feedback on this. I find that especially in the heat of the moment, that is especially difficult for leaders, for business development professionals, for investigators, for so many people to do because they get caught up in their needs. They get caught up in their default approach or preferences. They get caught up in how they feel and they lose sight of that greater outcome in order to appease or address 
how they're feeling in that moment in time. And they end up making a decision in a moment that takes them further away from where they need themselves in their group to be instead of closer to the outcome that they're looking to achieve. I find that to be a real struggle with a lot of people that I work with. And I think that ties into the self-awareness that you mentioned as well, which can have and flow, of course, but everybody aren't always self as self-aware as they should be. Yeah. Are there mechanisms or tools or techniques that you have found people can use to do a better job of maintaining an outcome focus in their conversations? I love this. And while you were speaking, I was in highly conceptual um, listening habit because I was making connections between so many different things simultaneously. So I'm hearing um, you talk about emotional agility. Basically, how do we show up in some of these conversations that are really challenging so that we can self-regulate and have our eye on the intended outcome, which is very likely the same for our entire group. So how can I manage myself, show up in a valuable way so that I can listen, so that we can collectively and collaboratively get to our intended outcome? So listening and our ability to manage when we get triggered or that perception of threat are completely reliant on one another, right? We can't listen. We can't um, contribute in a valuable way if we can't manage what's going on in our, you know, bioreactive system to the perception of threat. So the better we can manage our emotions, the better we can listen. Listening is at the root of the most powerful open-ended questions, right? So if we can manage ourselves, we can really listen. Then we can ask really powerful questions that get us to this collective leveraging of brain power so that we can move towards that outcome, right? That is our, our intended outcome. Here's what I see often. We as humans misperceive the intentions of other people in the conversation often because we observe body language or we observe and take offense at certain statements made or questions asked that have to do with that individual's habitual cognitive process. But we make assumptions about those people based on what we observe. And those assumptions are usually personality assumptions. And when we have these personality assumptions, that can really get in the way of solving business problems together. And I see it over and over and over again on teams where they get into this cycle of blame or mistrust or, you know, so many different different perceptions about the people that they work with that really creates an impasse in collaboration. Again, really long-winded answer to your question. No, the more long-winded, the better. People know I'm here. They're not tuning in to hear me talk. They're turning <laughs> tuning in to hear you talk. So the more the more long-winded, the better. Again, I'm I'm in agreement. Um, the assumptions that we make, they're not always wrong. Sometimes yeah. there's degrees, there's variance. You know how much do we? In the, how far in the gray area are we? Are we more towards right or wrong? 
Um, but to your point around, you know, body language, I could go on a 45 minute rant about how that is typically mislabeled, misread, misrepresented in the moment for any number of reasons, starting with the inaccuracy on how we've been educated to read it to begin with. Uh, but then you start talking yes. about the word choice and contextual or situational awareness. I find it, I'd be interesting and interested in your thoughts on this too. A lot of those evaluations really come from either alignment or violation with our expectations. So if I came into this conversation and I thought, you know what, Allison is going to be pretty defensive and she's going to have some ideas that I'm probably not going to agree with. So she's going to try to force them on me. So then you come in and you sit down in a chair and you kind of adjust your posture across your arms. I don't know that you fell off your bike mountain biking and now you've got a sore back. So you're sitting that way. Like I'm taking yeah. it as you're already starting an argument when you're not. Or if the opposite was true, I expected this to be a really easy conversation where you came in and just said, Mike, I think you've got a great idea. Let's do it. But instead yeah. you offered your own. Now I start taking that offensive because it violated the expectation I had coming in. I'm being long-winded now. So from your perspective, the I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the relation between our expectations and those assumptions that we make. Yeah. Whew. I didn't expect that question. And it's such, such a good one. You know, I think if you were to ask my husband about expectations, he would say expectations are the hobgoblin of happiness. That's what he says all the time. <laughs> expectations are the hobgoblin of happiness. And I, I believe that if we expect a particular outcome, we're often going to be disappointed. Um, because things present themselves in an organic way, typically. And if we have a specific outcome in mind, it's pretty rare that it actually ends up happening that way. Think about this. Have you ever had a conversation in your head where you've had both sides of the conversation? And we do this, we rehearse it sometimes so that we know exactly what we're going to say when someone responds to us, right? So we we have that, we say what we need to say and then we expect what they're gonna say back to us and then we've got that prepared response and then we know what they're gonna say to that and then we actually get into the conversation and we're taken completely off guard because we're not malleable at that point. We, yeah, you're, t you're like, yeah, I, I get it, right? So when we have a specific expectation, especially about a conversation, I think when the other person doesn't respond in the way that we anticipate they will, there's that amygdala response. There's that, you know, we, we freeze or we fight or we appease, um, we flee the conversation, whatever, whatever that is, we get bioreactive if at times that response isn't what we anticipated. And then our listening shuts down, right? So when we have a amygdala hijack, we are incapable of thinking, reasoning, discerning in that moment until we recover the prefrontal cortex, right? That's why after one of those conversations that doesn't go the way that we expected that it would, and we show up in a way that we're not proud of, that wasn't helpful, that didn't create the outcome that we intended for. Um, 10 minutes later, we think back on it and we're like, 
if I had a do-over, I would have said this. Or man, when they said this, I wish I had said that. So here's what I think about expectations. I'll get to it finally. In the in in for a specific outcome. If we can slow down, if we can be more present in the moment, more self-aware, and have more inquiry versus advocacy of what it is we want to say or how it is specifically that we want the outcome to to look, we can be more malleable. That's listening intelligence right there. Is not necessarily having an expectation, but really showing up in a conversation with a desire and a willingness to deeply learn and understand. If we show up in that way, it's very likely that things happen that are unexpected, but in a way that is of benefit to the group. Does that make sense? Total. I love it. And I I feel like those unexpected things that come up can really serve as another point on the map between where we started and the destination that we're going. So maybe it's, it's not the road we thought we would. But it's, a, it's another way for us to get to where we want to go based on leveraging that new opportunity, whatever this unexpected comment, behavior, question, topic is. It just gives us yeah. a, a reroute in order to find new value and keep moving. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, I think so much of that um, happens when, like I said before, when we're able to manage differences. When we actually begin to appreciate the different ways that people speak, offer their perspective, um, we teach something called the intersection model. Um, It it came from uh, the communication catalyst, actually. But the intersection model is a way to find alignment in action when there are really different perspectives and different viewpoints. And it's really about harnessing that collective brain power, right? So typically when we show up in a conversation, especially a difficult one, when there's a high stakes decision that needs to be made, let's say we're on a team, we have a new initiative and we really have to to create alignment moving forward. Um, So often what happens is we show up in that conversation and everyone wants to hammer their perspective. They want to share it. They want to coerce others to get on board with whatever it is their opinion is and their viewpoint is. So they're going to share it right away and they're going to share it forcefully. Flip side, maybe they don't share it at all, but they have a very strong perspective that creates a wall to hearing what others have to say. Right. So their viewpoint is very big in relation to the importance of someone else's viewpoint. Very, very unlikely we're going to find alignment when we show up in that way. But what if we all come with this intention, I am going to listen really intently to learn what is important to Michael in this? What is important to Jane, to Joe? to Emily, whatever that is. And before I share 
my opinion that I am really, you know, sticking with before I share my opinion, I'm going to listen to everyone and I'm going to be the last to speak. The likelihood of our opinion being shifted a little bit by something that someone else says, if we're really willing to listen, is very high. So I came in thinking I'm the smartest person in the room. And by the time I listened to everyone else, I realized, ooh, boy, what they had to say is a little bit smarter, maybe, or could add to my perspective. And now we've created something together. We've created this intersection of our viewpoints that never would have existed before. And that right there is really what I'm out to help teams achieve is this desire to leverage this diversity of thinking. But it, again, it requires being very self-aware, being, you know, in, in control of our emotions, especially when differences are present, and also having this deep desire to learn. And that's that's the magic sauce right there, I think. I love it. Um, I'm a big, big fan whenever possible of being the last to speak. Those who know me knew me when I was much younger probably just heard me say that and they're like, liar. Well, a lot can change in 20 years. Uh, me too. <laughs> I'm a big fan of being the last to speak and often being the last to speak well beyond anybody anticipated some sort of participation, letting it settle, letting the conversation unfold in front of me, letting everything come to me, and then starting to figure out when, where, and how to best contribute. So I absolutely love that. And I feel like to your point about finding the intersection, again, getting back to something you said earlier, if we're clear on the outcome, like the real outcome, not the Johnny needs to know that this is the way it's going to be. Like, what's the yeah. team trying to achieve? What does the customer need to experience? What are we trying to like the big goal? If we're clear on that, then finding the alignment likely becomes yeah. a lot easier. You've talked a lot about developing self-awareness. Yes. And each time I'd be like, oh, I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. You, uh, this is probably a good a time as any to come back to it. Um, I think self-awareness is one of those things that we all like, kind of like being a good listener. Some people probably think they're really self-aware and maybe they are. Some people probably think they're really self-aware and they're a brick. They have no self-awareness whatsoever. But I feel like developing self-awareness is a lesson in humility I, mm -hmm. It's a lesson in like learning and embracing our imperfections and, and those kinds of things. But from your standpoint, teaching and working with others, what are some specific things or some techniques we can try in order to improve our self-awareness so we can do a better job executing these ideas you're sharing? Great question. Okay. So you used the word humility before. 100%. I think that to develop great self-awareness, we have to be willing to do fearless personal inquiry, but also be really open to receiving and actively seeking out feedback from others around us. So here's the thing. Our intentions are one thing. How we're perceived by others 
is something entirely different, right? So we judge ourselves by our intentions. We are judged by our actions and we judge others by our perception of their actions. So we have to get really clear on how are people perceiving me? I know what my intentions are, but how are people perceiving my actions? That really leads to self-awareness. If we find those people who care so much about us and our progress, our career trajectory, whatever that is, if we find those people who are willing to say those things to us that are really hard to hear and are really hard to say, right? So, you know, I need to find those people who I can really trust to give it to me straight, even if it's painful. And then I have to take that. And again, that fearless personal inquiry, is this how I really want to show up? What do I need to do differently in order to perceive, to be perceived in, in a way that's truly aligned with my intentions? I think so much of that is dependent on slowing down. And we move in this culture of speed, right? You know, if if you're waking up on in the, you know, in the Serengeti, the sun comes up, you better be running. Whether you're you're the lion or you're the antelope, you know, it doesn't matter if you're chasing it or you're being chased. You you wake up and you start running. And I think that's how we show up in our culture, in our society, at work, at home. We are constantly moving so quickly and we have to press the pause button sometimes. Right. I I couldn't agree more. Slowing down. One of the things we like to say is I'm not asking you to spend more time with people, probably relationships, business and personal where we should, but I'm not here to tell people how to spend their time. At least make the time you do spend feel slower for your own experience and for theirs. Can I ask you a question? I know that we're kind of in this like you're. No, you ask me as many questions as you want, please. Okay. So here's my question for you because you you just mentioned um, just a bit ago. You know, if you knew me 20 years ago versus knowing you now and 20 years ago, you would be telling it like it is really sharing your perspective. I don't know, forcefully or not, but there was no willingness. uh, I shouldn't say not not willingness there. There was no hesitancy to share what you thought very quickly is kind of the impression that you give. And now, 20 years later. Very different intention Mm -hmm. in conversation. So what that says to me was you developed this great self-awareness over time and a real shift in terms of how you approach conversation. What was it for you? Was there a light bulb moment? Was there what how did that how did that evolve for you? I appreciate you asking. I don't know that there was a light bulb moment. I'm pretty sure there wasn't. Um, the light bulb moment probably came when I realized years down the road that it had happened. So I guess that doesn't really count. Um, I feel like it was two things, to be honest, some of it is just age and maturity and figuring out my way through life and those kinds of things. But I honestly believe it was my career as an investigator. So Mm. as I started my career in investigations, 
I sort of fell into that mold, which fit my personality at the time, which was, you know, the, the dog off the leash. I've got this. I'm going to get it. I'm in control. You're going to tell me that doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> it just really doesn't work. Hang on one second. I'm going to cough. I don't want I appreciate that. That type of approach doesn't work regardless of, of what we see on TV. Hollywood makes it seem like it's a good idea. It's not. So thankfully, I had to learn through some unsolicited feedback when I was young to change my approach, especially in investigative interviews, because I might be and I still get this sometimes, especially from my wife where I might be viewed as coming across more intense than I intend to be or yeah. coming on a little bit stronger than I intend to be in different situations. Uh, then once I got to work for Wicklenders, Oloski and Associates and in interrogation was my full-time job. Now I am interviewing in scenarios where there are, there, there are no evidence there. People have already been interrogated. Honestly, even the clients are probably by definition lying to us because they're embarrassed. It's got this far. So I have to encourage everybody to share information. So it really got into a place where, and my teammates were the same way. We had to put our ego in our back pocket in order to be yeah. able to encourage, in order to give people the experience they needed in order to earn the outcomes that we desired. So I think all of that started to play in. And oddly enough, I feel like traveling on my own so much, like literally having to travel the world, yeah. problem solve and learn how to operate in different places, whether here in the United States or abroad, I, I feel like that whole layer of experience and everything I just described probably covers you know, 10 to 15 year window. And it's still ongoing, to yeah. be honest. But I feel like yeah. that those layers of experiences helped me develop, especially in a lot of the conversations we're referencing today, like a, a calm center of confidence that I might not be right and it doesn't matter. But yeah. there's something out here that I can learn. There's opportunities to connect that will often surprise people. I just need to let the situation unfold until I can figure it out. So I love what you're sharing with me because I had somewhat of a similar, slightly nuanced path, but this is, we're going on well over 10 years now, but I'll share with you that my habitual listening is very conceptual, reflective, and connective, meaning I am typically listening for ways that I can help you in your situation based on my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. Very little orientation towards detail, facts, metrics, et cetera. So that's habitual for me. In its unhealthy expression, as it was many years ago, because I really was not aware of this, unhealthy expression is unsolicited advice or ideas for something you could do that could change your situation um, that weren't necessarily grounded in a deep understanding of the circumstances. So I'm listening and my intention is I really want to help. And the way that it came across was often offensive, um, sometimes tone deaf, right? Without asking any more detailed questions or just listening to gain more information, just being inspired so quickly to step in and offer solution 
there were times where I really lost credibility with people, especially in the business setting, because I had such a brilliant idea that I wanted to share right away that I think could help the situation that I didn't ask enough questions. I was the first to speak, the first to offer, wanted to be the smartest in the room in order to be of service to everyone. And yet when I did that, so often what I shared was not relevant, was not practical. And I had someone willing to to give me really difficult feedback, which was around listening and giving me the suggestion to pause. If it's a great idea, it's going to be a great idea in five minutes. It's going to be a great idea in 30 minutes. Tomorrow, it'll still be a good idea, but do some more vetting before you so urgently and energetically share your perspective. Let other people share their perspective. And if that thing that you are so connected to is still really valuable, then it's going to be of service to the group. Do you know how many times I've had a brilliant idea that I am so thankful I didn't share? (laughs) So when we actually pause and let other people speak, some of those metrics come out, some of the details, or we ask a question to vet our brilliant idea. So I, I love hearing about your trajectory to this maturity maybe in in the way that you show up in conversation now. And um, that was, again, a very long-winded way of saying, um, yeah, I I get that. And it's so great to have those people around us that are willing to um, step into those hard conversations and feedback that is not easy. No, it's not. And I appreciate you sharing your story as well. And I feel like when we're asking people for that feedback, whether we agree with it or not, don't respond. Or if you have to respond, say thank you. (laughs) But don't argue it. Don't explain it. Don't justify it. Don't quantify it. Don't add context to it. Just don't. Because to your point, we might walk away and think about it for 30 seconds and realize that that justification or context doesn't apply. We might wake up two days from now and think, you know what? Allison actually had a really good idea and I really needed to hear it. It pissed me off when she said it, but I really needed to hear it. So if we're going to these people and we're asking them for this difficult feedback, and then we're either defending ourselves or attacking them, whether we feel like we are or not, if they feel like we are, then we're demotivating them from giving us the feedback that we actually need. And if there's any way that we can show the people who are giving us the feedback that it matters, that would likely be helpful too. So if you had that conversation with me, Mike, do pause. Sometimes you got things that'd be really helpful. They'll still be helpful tomorrow. Sometimes you're just getting way ahead. You're derailing the whole thing. Just pause. Three weeks later, we're in a meeting together. And I catch myself. And I pause. I keep my brilliant idea to myself. Turns out it would have derailed, wasn't helpful. If I can track you down later that day, that week or whatever, and have the presence of mind to say, Allison, thank you so much for giving me that feedback. As a matter of fact, in that meeting we were just in, I was going to open my mouth with an idea and didn't because of what you said. And in retrospect, it was a really good idea. So thank you. Now by me reinforcing that I listened to you, I'm giving you tangible evidence that I listened. Now you're more willing to share more feedback. And now this self-awareness and improvement loop can continue. 
And I think there's one extra little piece to it that's really important, which is when someone gives us really difficult feedback and we take it in and we visceralize it and we try to practice it, um, sometimes we're going to nail it and sometimes we're, you know, we're really not. But I think what's really important is that we go back to those people and say, how am I doing? Right. I heard you. You gave me this particular feedback. Here's what I'm what I'm doing with it. Here's how I'm applying it. How am I doing? And, and then, right. So we could have all these great intentions to to apply something and maybe our conversational partners feel the impact and and maybe they don't. And we might need to course correct or adjust. But um, that first round of feedback and then a second round on the first round. <laughs> I love it. I'm a, I, I'm tr- with the whole conversation. I'm tracking. I, I think these ideas are spot on and really important. And I think they're especially important for people who are successful because often yeah. our success in our education, in our track record, I believe, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, can motivate us to be worse listeners. Because if I am so smart and I am so good and I am so successful, sure, I want your feedback and ideas. But at the end of the day, I'm good with my ideas because my ideas have gotten me this far. So in your experience, I would, I guess, so now I'm going to ask a bad question. I'm going to ask a compound question because why not? Uh, Number one, does that line up a little bit with your experience? And then number two, if it does or doesn't even, are there ways or techniques that you've used to help people be be more self-aware in the face of their successes that they might use to justify their behavior? Okay, great question. So here's the first part of that, the question about, you know, as we get higher up in the in the hierarchy, become more successful inside of the organization. Maybe now we are a leader of of others. Um I would say that sometimes what happens is this unintentional shift that prevents that individual from listening. The unintentional shift is because they have been elevated. They are now in this position of leadership. They are expected to know. They are expected to have the answers and they're expected to be the one that's giving the direction. And so they get caught up in this hierarchical position that prevents them from seeking input from others because of this pressure to be the one in charge that has to know. Now, the most successful and trusted and effective leaders, I think, are those that get up there in that hierarchical position and they realize I could be so much smarter with more information from the people who are actually boots on the ground and executing the decision-making and are there in it day in, day out. So in order to inform my thinking and my decision-making, I'm going to pull them in and get their feedback and their perspective to help me create the direction going forward. That depends on a lot of self-awareness and humility and vulnerability, right? For a leader in, in a very high up inside of an organization to say, I have some thoughts, 
and I need more. And I want to involve you in this decision-making process. That said, not all of the feedback that we get or the insight that we get from people do we need to put into action or to, to, you know, create the decision. But we probably, if we're asking for that feedback, we're asking for that input, if we're not using it, we need to inform people as to why. The more as a leader, the higher up inside of an organization that we get, the more that we can share the thinking behind some of the decision-making. Even if people don't agree with it, if they understand the thinking, often they can align with it and commit to it. If they don't understand the thinking and they're not in agreement, it's very likely they'll be compliant because their job depends on it, but they won't necessarily be committed. Right? And that's a huge difference for people who are listening. How many times a day does leader X get somebody to say, fine, I'll do it. And then walk away feeling like that's a win. When in the short term, I guess maybe it is, but we just got compliance, minimum time, minimum quality, minimum effort, minimum give a heck, whatever. And we're going to have to continue to find ourselves in that loop for battling for compliance as opposed to earning their commitment because they understand the impact of their actions in a greater situation. You brought up something really, really important, which is so often leaders will make a flyby request of someone, hey, can you do this, right? Without sharing what it means in a bigger, broader context. And if that person on the receiving end of the the request doesn't really get it and doesn't agree, and they're just, they're going to do it because, you know, they have to. What are the chances that the performance is really going to be um, what was expected by the individual making the request, right? So we talk a lot about when we make a request of someone, engaging them in the why, the bigger overarching reason that it's important so that they can buy in, that they can align with it. If they're aligned with the why and they feel like what it is is being asked of them has a broader context, a benefit, what are the chances that they're going to put the effort and um, the intention into it to be accountable? It's much, much higher. The performance improves dramatically when we engage that person who's carrying out that request in the why of it, we Agreed. all want to contribute, right? We all want to make a difference. So, you know, sometimes, you know, we have to ask people to do things that they, they don't want to do. But if they understand why they're doing it and the difference that it will ultimately make, the, the impact, it's, it's likely that they'll show up for it. Speaking of alignment, I'm in complete alignment with all of that. Uh, I'm trying to keep it on the clock here. I want to be very respectful of your time. And I'm really, really thankful for all the insight that you're sharing here. So 
to probably oversimplify a layered question and thought. If people are listening to this thinking, okay, like all of us, Mike and Allison included, there's ways for me to improve my listening and how I show up and how I connect and manage my emotions and all of these things. If somebody came to you, as I am coming to you and said, Allison, what would be your top advice for somebody who was looking to improve their listening skills? Where do you recommend they start? Great question. The first place to start. If you want science to kind of be and and have a result that you can can look at and if you believe in assessments, I would say start there. You know, complete complete an, an, an assessment that tells you um, or gives you some insight onto your into your habitual preferences so that you can understand this model, this concept. Um, it's it doesn't identify who you are, but it's really some some good insight into some of this cognitive habitual behavior. So that's a great place to start. But then what's most important is that in any conversation, you really get present and you're aware of what could be distracting you and you put that aside. And if you're not able to be present in a conversation, there's too much distraction, I would say don't have the conversation then. So put some bumpers around that external environment so that you can really be present. Here's the other part of it. And it speaks to what I was saying um, very early on in our conversation. The desire for our conversational partners to walk away feeling heard should be our number one priority in communication. So if I show up, limiting my distraction. And I say, I want Michael to walk away from this interaction feeling like I'm a good listener. That means I'm asking questions that are really connected to what he's sharing with me. That means I am deeply compassionate. It means I'm giving him my time and he's walking away feeling like I get him. So I would say that's probably number one, again, long-winded way. But if, you know, the, I think the most important thing, if we want to improve our listening is to have that intention. My conversational partners are going to walk away from this interaction knowing that I got them, that I respected their perspective, that I cared about their viewpoint and I wanted to hear it. And I didn't just force my own. I think that's number one. I think Listening that's great. to learn. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. So where can people go to find more about you and what you do and engage with you? So look me up on, on LinkedIn. Um, reach out and tell me, you know, a little something about what's important to you. Send me, shoot me a note. You can email me, Allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N at echolistening.com. You can go to our website, echolistening.com. Um, I highly encourage anyone who geeks out on, on listening 
and self-awareness and improving leadership to reach out. Let's, let's chat. Let's have a conversation. Fantastic. And I'll make sure I share all of those links in the show notes as well. So people will have them right there for them. Perfect. Allison, I cannot thank you enough for the conversation today. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for your openness, your ideas, everything that you shared. I was taking notes while you were talking. I really appreciate it. Hopefully, this is a conversation we can continue down the road. I am so honored to be here. Truly, again, celebrity status in my eyes, Michael. Well, thank you very much. Embarrass me on the way in and the way out. I appreciate it. (laughs) But thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to meet you. And I really am excited to keep the conversation going. Thank you. Allison, thank you so much. What a great conversation. I truly appreciate you sharing your time and all of those ideas and insights with us. Thank you. I love the conversation about self-awareness. So important. Outcome orientation. So important. The different ways for leaders to stop and consider why they're really listening, what's important to them, and what their counterparts, their conversation partners, as you said, are experiencing. So very important. Thank you for sharing the four filters with us. I appreciate that. And thank you for sharing that intersection model as well. Really appreciate the conversation packed with so many ideas. Thank you. And of course, thank you to everybody who took the time to listen today. I truly appreciate it. On the way out, we've got to make sure we thank our sponsors as well. Of course, Humantel, if you are at all interested in understanding what people are likely thinking and feeling by registering their changing emotions on their face or their body language, please head over to humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for all of their online training programs. 25% off, excuse me, all of their online training programs. Go ahead and check them out. Also, if you're interested in emotional intelligence, head over to ei-magazine.com and explore their ever-expanding library of emotional intelligence-related resources, articles, blogs training programs, webinars, podcasts, and more. Check it out. And of course, for the professional interviewers who are listening, please head over to certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers and check out what their global membership has to provide, the benefits, the learning opportunities, the network and contributing opportunities, the local chapters. They have so much going on there. Please check it out. And of course, while you're there, explore the certified forensic interviewer designation to determine if that level of commitment and expertise is best for you or your organization at this point. And of course, thank you so much for being here and listening. Please do all the things the algorithms ask us to do. Like the show, subscribe to the show, share the show, tell your friends about it, share your feedback with us. Let us know what you'd like to hear more of or less of. What can we give you to help you with all of your high impact conversations? Thank you so much for spending another hour or so with us today. We truly appreciate it. Stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.